Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in Iran. My guest today is my good friend, Tony Scarcello, who is a, he's been a pastor for a number of years. Uh, he spoke at last year's Exiles in Babylon conference. He's the author of the book, Regenerate, Following Jesus After Deconstruction. And he's also working on another forthcoming book as we speak. Uh, and Tony is currently in the process of planting a church in Springfield, Oregon, uh, south of Portland. And we talk a lot about church planning, different church planning philosophies. I think what he is envisioning in this church plan is really fantastic. And uh, I'm super excited to see what God does with that church plant. Tony is just such a real down-to-earth dude and love talking with him. Super sharp. Um, we talk about deconstruction. We talk about progressive Christianity. We talk about church planning. We talk about ecclesiology. And there were a few times when I think I got caught up in the moment on some rabbit trails I was pursuing in my own mind. And whenever Preston Sprinkle um, gets carried away with thinking out loud, uh, that's always a, a complex space to be. So uh, welcome to my the madness of my world on Theology of Raw. But more importantly, let's welcome back to the show the one Tony Scarcella. I mean, there's so much we could talk about. And what I love, I just, I, I miss hanging out with you in person, man. We, we could literally talk about, I mean, pretty much everything. Like we'll go through like the deep theology, practical stuff, life stuff. And one of the areas that I love your perspective on is the whole like conversation around deconstruction and your book, Regenerate, yeah. it documents your story of kind of deconstruction, reconstruction. And so you very, would you say you deconstructed or on a path to deconstructing or went through like how would you describe your own journey in a, in a two minute yeah. or less <laughs> i don't think i deconstructed as much as you can deconstruct okay. um like i never I, I got to a point where i wasn't certain i believed and maybe the majority of like the historical claims of the bible okay um and i think i had in a lot of ways cut the cord of continuity between um like biblical historic traditional Christianity and kind of a more modern, for lack of a better term, like liberal Christianity. And, uh, but I, all, but I, but there are some people who deconstruct so much that they're just like completely done with the term Christian, not even going to pretend to have it. Um, I, I, I was like, you know, I had listened to people like Rob Bell and Richard Rohr and it's like, Oh, well, I can still in a metaphorical sense, call myself a Christian. Um, that's not at all where I'm at now, but like I, I went from really rigid fundamentalism to, to kind of that, uh, pool, I think. Do you think, I mean, that's just that your, your last line, rigid fundamentalism. What percentage do you think <laughs> of people who deconstruct from Christianity have a similar trajectory from some kind of rigid fundamentalism? Like I rarely hear people deconstruct from a real healthy, humble, vibrant, moderate evangelicalism where pastors are humble and women are empowered. And, you know, do you, I mean, do you know, I don't, I don't think I've met a single person. In fact, I had a lot of friends who were like, just came from really healthy backgrounds. So when I was deconstructing and like, you know, perfect example is like learning that there is more than one atonement theory. So when I was growing up in the Bible college, I went to like, there wasn't, there wasn't atonement theories. It was that God poured out his wrath on Christ so that he wouldn't pour out his wrath on us. Penal substitution. So, yeah. Yeah. Penal substitutionary atonement. And as I was, unpacking that and like realizing that there's other ways of looking at that story and that the cross is way more mysterious than I taught it what was taught it was. I had friends who were like, well, I've been a Christian my whole life and I never believed that it was that God just was so mad at us. He had to kill mm -hmm. Jesus instead. And I, and I just like, I, that blew my mind. And, and I was like, if you would have told me that before I was deconstructing, I probably would have thought you were a heretic. Like wow. that was wow. really like kind of rigid, rigid and brittle, I think are the two best words to describe easy to break and like easy to, to get angry. Rigid and brittle. Did you coin that? That is so, that is so good. No. When, and, and even the analogy, like when things are rigid, they are easier to break. Right. I mean, for the most part, I don't want to say absolutely, but cause yeah, I mean, another big one is uh, like the age of the earth is a big one that I've seen for people believing in a literal hyper, hyper literal uh, reading of Genesis one and two, uh, young earth, like 6,000 year old, 10,000 year old earth. And again, that, that's a viewpoint that can be argued from scripture, no doubt. Um, but when you make it like synonymous with this is orthodoxy, if you don't believe this, you don't believe in the authority of scripture. There are no other legitimate ways to understand Genesis like that. 
that is fostering <laughs> deconstruction. Begging for it. Right. I mean, yeah. is that too strong? I mean, I, I again, I'm not I'm not saying the viewpoint doesn't have some credibility. I'm saying when you make it on par with like believe in the Bible, um, you are just asking you are nudging, especially young people who I don't know, go to college, <laughs> take a science class um, <laughs> like they you're, you are just pushing them towards deconstruction. Is that, is yeah. that, I, I, I don't want to overstate, sometimes I overstate things just to make people mad, but. <laughs> yeah, I really think that you don't have to have, um, like, I, I don't believe necessarily in a young earth, um, but I don't think you have to have come to the term, come to terms with the reading of Genesis that I take right. to teach people how to think through different interpretations and that somebody who disagrees with you on that is not a heretic or like, um, somebody to be looked at with suspicion. Like um, my friend, well, I think you know him too, Kurt Willems. Like he yeah. he's, he says that like churches are really good at making atheists. Like they're just kind of atheists yes. making things. When you, when you teach them like that there is no other way but this way to believe on that. And there are like a list of things where that's important and you, you do need to do that. Um, but, but like that's why like the Council of Nicaea is so important because they literally were like, how do we, how do we make that list like concise enough to where we say you have to believe in these things in order to like be an apprentice of Jesus and call yourself a Christian. And when you read the list, there's a lot more that's not on there than is on there. And age of the earth isn't one of those things. So if you're not begging your kids to deconstruct by saying this is the only way that you can read it and there's no other ways to read it, you are sort of begging them to turn off their brains and to not actually like engage with with reality, <laughs> like yeah. with, with the reality that there are different viewpoints. I, I don't want to say Christians shouldn't have convictions, strong convictions. What I do want to say is the strength of your conviction should match the depth of your humble and thorough study of, of whatever the issue is, you know? And I think that's where, I think that's where younger people especially are getting kind of tired. It's kind of like the black and white answer that that doesn't, come off as humble. Um, it disrespects other viewpoints. Because in the world of the internet, they know there's a thousand different ways to interpret every single thing. And there's smart people on both sides of every issue. And it just looks so suspicious for young people when you're like, no, this is the right way. And like, what about these hundred other people at de- degrees higher than you that disagree with that? Like, can you at least acknowledge? And if you don't acknowledge that, you know what those are, you know, here's why I have interacted with those views here's some good points they bring up here, but here's some areas where I feel like they, they might fall short. And that's why, you know, I do hold to this position, acknowledging that there's, there are smart people on this. If you don't approach it like that, they're just going to be so, they're not going to, they're going to be less trusting of your viewpoint than more trusting. If you just think that saying your viewpoint louder and louder is going to convince them. Right. I mean, <laughs> Dude, at least the circles I grew up in uh, confuse like arrogance and ignorance with faith. And like you can be full of faith and also not be arrogant and ignorant. And like when it, when it, when all it takes is, and this is what it did for me. Like I was, I don't remember what the guy's actual name is, but Dr. Dino and um, I can't remember his name. Dr. But Dino. Yeah. He has like the dinosaur museum and talks about how they uh, drowned in the flood and Ken Ham. You think he, Ken Ham or yeah, no? Yeah, oh, Ken Ham. Yeah, yeah. So I was like watching his lectures and all that kind of stuff. And then my buddy who was going to go to uh, Bible college, a, a more like um, kind of moderate Bible college, um, he was just like, well, why are Genesis 1 and 2 out of order? Like if it's meant to be taken literally, why is the sequence of events different? Huh. Just just flip the page. Like the sequence of events is totally out of order. And that just like – I had no answer for that. And like, uh, it's, uh, it, it's – yeah, it's it's and I'd read Genesis one and two a million times and never noticed that. But when you like expect to when you go to the Bible expecting it to say something, it's going to hinder your ability to read what it actually says. And I think if you're like arrogant and ignorant, yeah. like you're going to go yeah. in there full of expectations that the Bible wasn't written to meet. Hmm. Did you see the? Uh, I think from a couple of years ago, the the you know they, they had the at the museum they had the ark, the big huge ark. It was it suffered water damages. And so they, they sued they sued the insurance company because the insurance company wasn't going to cover the water damages because it rained really hard. It kind of started to flood a little bit. This is a true story. <laughs> you can't 
you can't make this stuff up. I mean, <laughs> I'm like, oh my word. Every single deconstructed Christian or atheist is going to have a hate. And they did, obviously. I mean, it's, you know, yeah, yeah. So, That's an SNL. Unless you just yeah. hang your head and say, I oh, just. Yeah, you guys, you guys got us on that one. <laughs> <laughs> so what? So you were on a path. So you were trying to maintain some kind of Christian. You wanted. You didn't want to leave the faith. You just wanted to a radically re revised version of Christianity for good or for ill. But so what? Um, tell us about what brought you back, or what? Why? Why did you find that version of Christianity not as compelling as you once did? Yeah. Um. There's a couple things. Uh. One is. When you like deconstruct, I think, well, I, I'll say this for myself, but I think a lot of people would fall into this category. What you're looking for is a better set of tools to deal with reality. Hmm. Um, I think deconstruction happens when the tools you were given no longer manages reality for you, no longer gives you the ability to engage thoughtfully with the world. And so deconstruction kind of the brand of deconstruction that I was going with, which was uh, really influenced by like the liturgists at the time, or, um, I mean, I, I, there's, there's some of Rob Bell stuff that I like, so I don't want to crap on Rob Bell, but yeah. Rob Bell and like, it, it, it tells you that you're going to become a more tolerant, thoughtful, open-minded, open-hearted, uh, person, which I think, I think when most of us want to be that. And, but then once you do it, uh, you realize like most of it is also just as caustic intellectually narrow huh. tribalistic um as uh the fundamentalism i came from only this time this type of fundamentalism is broadly accepted by for lack of a better term secular culture and so i didn't find myself any more at peace i didn't find any more depth inside of me um i feel like there was like this point of deconstruction where i was really working my brain in a really healthy way and then i just went right past that point so what brought me back was first like i didn't find that deep pool that I was for and looking for. Um, but then I also realized that progressive Christianity sort of touts that like it, it takes Jesus more seriously because it, in a lot of ways it is more focused on doing what Jesus said to do. Mm. But it, it, there's so many claims of Jesus that are deeply offensive to progressive like ideas and thoughts um, that like if you don't take Jesus a little bit more seriously and scripture a little bit more seriously, progressive Christianity just kind of feels toothless. It feels a little bit like cherry picking the version of Jesus I want. And there are lots of people who can convince themselves of that. But because I've been doing that my whole life as a fundamentalist, like I was I knew I was doing that this time. And hmm. and it just hmm. never felt honest. Um, so I would say those two things, like not finding the depth that I was looking for and feeling like that I had an anemic Jesus um, were the catalyst for rethinking things again. Wow. And th that happened. I feel like that was shortly before we met, right? This is like five, six years ago or something, or we'd been exchanging emails during that process. Okay. We had hung the, by the time we finally hung out in person in Eugene, yeah, right. six, was six years, five or six years ago, I was learning uh, through you and AJ, uh, AJ Swoboda for yeah. podcast listeners, um, that there is a uh, there is a whole nother <laughs> pool of swimming. And Fundamentalism I and progressive Christianity aren't the two options. <laughs> and and, and I, I had no clue. Seriously, had yeah. no clue. And yeah. and I will say like that the denomination I'm a part of, um, well, I'm has lots of problems, uh, just like every denomination. I'm a part of a Foursquare, Foursquare yeah. Pastor. Yeah. Um, gosh, I had just joined staff at a Foursquare church and was going to their conferences and was just blown away. First time I ever saw a woman preach in person. Mm, First time mm. I ever saw a person of color preach in person. Um, and like listening to them talk about issues of justice and equity, not in like this angry, anxious, progressive way, but like in this deeply rooted biblical justice. I had no clue this existed and it felt so much more robust and and I, and I, as a Pentecostal, I really sensed that like the spirit was just leading me to deeper pools at that time. So our friendship and me joining Foursquare and like all those things happening at the same time was just a perfect storm to kind of help me find my footing again. Yeah, I love the, the Foursquare seems, and again, yeah, I'm sure there's disgruntled Foursquare people out there. They're going to be angry that I say something positive about the denomination. But I, in my experience, they just seem to blend the spirit led, you know, the, all the good in Pentecostalism, you know, just that vibrant, the passion, the kind of, yeah, just the kind of, the kind of healthy charismatic expression. And yet they also, um, 
I'm going to word this so I don't like <laughs> throw shade on people who are, but like they, they seem to be very thoughtful too. Like they value um, theology and intellectual tradition and, and, and they pursue justice, but in a very biblical way, they, they reach out to the marginalized, but don't throw out sexual ethics, you know, to do like, they just seem to blend it really well. They seem very similar to, in my mind to the ECC, the evangelical covenant church, just kind of that real middle of the road, just taking taking healthy aspects of various other expressions of the faith that might go really extreme in one direction or the other. I don't know. That's my been my experience, you know. Yeah. We have a denominational president that I think you could wait a lifetime for. Like he is a he's really solid dude and took over uh, right like at the beginning of January 2020. <laughs> it's like so over oh, uh, uh, the trans his transition was taking place during COVID and at a point where the church was more fractured than I'd ever seen it in my life. And yeah. uh, he just led and just, I was just so impressed with his leadership and like his unwavering commitment to like Foursquare's stance on issues of justice, even though like that word was being used in a oh, whole yeah. di- bunch of different ways. And, but like still making so much space for people who, when they hear the word justice, like think wokeism and Marxism and like th- at a certain point, you're just never going to be okay with that word. And like, and he's yeah. accepted. Yeah. I just, I think a lot of that starts with leadership. I think our leadership in the last 15 years has really fostered that, like that, uh, that spirit and that yeah. kind of ironic spirit and force. Cause you, you do have, uh, so going back to just to be fair, you, you do have the Foursquare does have a kind of very conservative political right kind of contingency, right? Is is that is that an outlier or is that a strong? You know, before I like give too many glowing reports on the don, but because I've heard you say you've been in spaces where it's like, oh man, this is not an, a healthy kind of. It's it's been way too yeah. politicized, you know. But is that is would you in your estimation is that a small percentage of Foursquare churches or no? Or is it hard to tell? I think, and it's like you'd think it would have to be. Because how could you stay in the denomination when the leadership is so okay. focused on things that you would find deeply offensive? Okay. Um, but like you know, I really think Foursquare is really good at trusting their pastors to be missional in their context. Um, and so I think it depends on where you live. And there we have a force. We have a Foursquare pastor uh, who's actually planting a church in Boise. Um, we're right outside of Boise, and uh, he and I are in a cohort together, and he's definitely more conservative than I am. But even he is like, I'm not getting on board with that, like Trumpism from the pulpit, and okay. like he might, he might value, he might have those values in his own life, um, but he's really, really like restrained and being super intentional in his planting to not like be the Patriots Church, and um, so yeah, like I think most of us are like, even if we have views that defer. We all want to come to the table and just like push Jesus. That's the thing we want to push. And right. I think the outliers are the more that's good on both sides. Yeah. Outliers on both sides in Foursquare. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, man. So where are we at right now as a church? Uh, you're planning, you're planning a church, right? So you, I mean, you're really, I mean, p- planning a church in the kind of post COVID or post post ish COVID world. I don't know if we'll ever be post COVID, but yeah, what's that like, man? I mean, is it is it challenging? Is it exciting? I mean, you're just now in this in the beginning stages of gathering people, and it seems like there's you get a lot of for initial gatherings. That's you had over a hundred at a kind of first kind of invite only meeting. I mean, that's pretty. That's kind of a big deal. Is there is there a hunger for something different? It, it, you know, or I can't quite put my finger on why there's so much interest. I think part of it is that myself and my leadership team have been doing ministry in our area for a long time. But I will say like our our church's name, and I don't say this as a plug. I say this to make a point. Like our church's name is open table church. Hmm. And just to give Hmm. like an idea of the cultural moment, I've had conversations with people who are concerned about us because they think that open table church means you're affirming and open and progressive. And, and then I've had people who, some people who came to that gathering who were disappointed in us because they thought the same thing, but coming from an opposite side, we haven't even started yet. And I'm having coffees with people who are like, and that's just about the, just wait till they hear me preach. Like that's just the church name. So yeah, it's, it is, uh, I'm not going to say it's exhausting. I think like I have grace for the season, but I'm definitely like, this is a narrow, this is a tightrope. Like you say one wrong thing and, uh, any number of people are going to take it in a million different directions. And that, that is a post COVID 
reality. Not that that wasn't always there, but it's just, I talked, you know, Josh Butler, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. He, he was Love on the you. podcast and like during COVID he says, I've never seen people just read so much into some real neutral kind of phrases. Like he said, uh, <laughs> oh, I'm going to misquote him here. He said they had, they had some motto at the church, like Jesus loves all people or something. And they, they misinterpreted it as, oh, you're saying all lives matter as a reaction against black lives matter. And they took it as this stab against, and he was like, this, this has been our motto of like 20 years. This is before. Or <laughs> it was something like it was so ridiculous. He was just like scratching his eyes, thinking, "How did you read so much into something like that's Just it wasn't even close to that. Like, anyway, um, you, you have access to a lot of like you know a lot of pastors. Yeah. So tell me if like I'm off in this thinking, but I I sort of feel and this I'm an Enneagram eight, so I think this comes really easy for me. But I sort of feel like you know when you're pastoring, you have to have a really clarified vision of who you're reaching with your church. And just really kill your darlings now and accept yeah. that your church is not going to reach everybody. Like I, uh, there is a church, I'm not even going to say where, but I, they posted on their Instagram that they're a church for everyone. And I, I get that like idea that like, I think what they're saying is anybody can come to their church and hopefully feel welcomed and cared for. But if you're a church for everyone, you're a church for no one. Like at this point, like, I think like, because there are people all over the map who need different levels of discipleship. I think the spirit needs to compel leaders to have really specific vision with the types of people they want to go for. Um, and if you're not doing that, I think you're begging to watch your church be split up and destroyed by hmm. uh, bad actors within the community. So for us, like at our vision meeting, we were just very like, look, we are for, uh, we're biblically orthodox. Like we, 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 we probably sound conservative on a lot of key issues, but we're also like deeply committed to inclusivity and deeply committed to justice. And like, we're going to do those, do those work in that work in our city. And I know like that there are people who hear those words, inclusive injustice, and in their mind, they have a suitcase that is filled mm. with things that my suitcase doesn't have. And, yeah. Um, yeah. but like, I'm not going to, I just, I'm not going to spend my time as a pastor constantly debating with people who are triggered by the word justice. There's plenty of churches you can go to that will not use that word. But yeah, like for us, yeah. our missional context is we're pursuing that. And I don't know. Do you think that that's just bad leadership or is that good leadership? No, well, I have nothing but weak opinions on this. <laughs> Let me gather my thoughts because I, I do have, I have like a lot of thoughts in my head right now. I just want to make sure they, they're clear. Um, yeah, I, I think – you should have kind of your main kinds of people that you feel called to disciple that you want to reach. Uh, for instance, if you had some KJV only suit and tie fundamentalists that thinks Trump is the second Messiah. Um, not that all those things always go hand in hand like that. D is it your mission? Is that your like, Oh, I thrive on wanting to help that person maybe see a newer version of Jesus. I'm going to guess you're like, I, I, I don't, have the toolkit. I don't have the desire. I, that's not what I'm called to do. Other people might say, Oh, I really want to reach, you know, um, atheists, you know, just those, just people that hate God, you know, or no, I wonder, I really have a heart for, you know, Christians who are maybe deconstructing from a view of Jesus that has been warped. And I want to kind of recorrect that. I want to reach, you know, younger people who are leaving the faith. I want to reach boomers who, um, for whatever reason, you know, I think that's valid. I think I do. I mean, obviously the church should be open to everybody, but I, I I don't think I have a problem with a certain kind of emphasis in a church. For instance, I mean, so there I who's I talking to the other day? Oh, the guys down at a Tampa Underground. You know, they they they're you know the Tampa Underground is a, is a uh, community of all these like hundred micro churches scattered throughout Tampa. And he says some are planted in like upper middle class gated community and others are in the, you know, most grungy, like t gang infested areas of the inner city, you know, and like each one, you're, you, people who go to the gated community one are, they wouldn't really fit the vibe of the other one. And he said, that's, we, we were okay with that. Like that's, each one kind of has a missional focus that, that, that creates this kind of camaraderie and community around it. So I, I I think that's very valid. Um, obviously, you wouldn't turn somebody away if they came and and they didn't fit the kind of profile. Like, hey, it is for everybody. Like anybody's welcome. Um, but I wouldn't change your language, your mission, your focus, your vibe to accommodate to every single kind of person. No, I mean, um, 
and it, th- I, I don't think this is my cynicism because I do tend to get cynical sometimes, but um, I would probably err on the side of saying things and doing things that will repel, repel, like push away. <laughs> like p- people that are like, well, you said the word justice. Well, are you woke or, well, you know, you did, you did this or like that the people that are just kind of looking for like, no, I need you to fit this box. And and you said something that you don't, I would go out of your way to, to that's going to be pastorally exhausting. Those, those kind of people that are just coming in and they're, they want you to be something that they want you to be. And if they don't fit that right away, they're going to try to stay in. If you try to bait and switch them saying, Oh no. And you try to like, you know, the, the person who's kind of more left leaning to try, Oh no, no, we're, we're, we're not those fundamentally. Here's why. And then the more right-leaning person, oh, no, 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 no. I'm, you know, I would say, dude, come out with a bang, be who you are. And you're going to draw people who want to be a part of that kind of community, form that group up front. So you have a robust group of core committed people and, and you lay that, that thick vision down at the beginning. You know, we are going to be about justice. We are going to be about ethnic reconciliation. We are going to be about the authority of scripture. We are going to be about a countercultural sexual ethic. And we're not going to make any bones about that. Um, we are not going to wave the flag. We are, you know, whatever I, I'm trying to yeah. don't be purposely triggering with your language, <laughs> but I don't see you. I don't see that spirit in you, but I would say be clear with your messaging and let the chips fall where they may. So here's our values. Mm-hmm. We're going to message that, but I'm not going to waste time on people who are just going to misunderstand or read into it or not like this little nuance, whatever, like that's, that's just going to be, that's going to be a, a, there's so many people that are going to benefit from your pastoral heart that you don't want people who are going to steal that energy away from you to, to, to in a sense, steal away from more rich, vibrant pastoral opportunities that you're, that you are going to have with a a core group. Does that make sense? I mean, and again, I'm just, I'm kind of thinking out loud. So I, I don't mean this. I'm not counseling you here. I'm just trying to like, talk with you here. What do you, what do you, what are your thoughts? I I think, I think I, so I agree with you. I do want to say when you're church planting that I'm in an ad, I'm in an advantageous point where I can do that. Um, there are pastors who have been faithfully pastoring for 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years and are just now having to figure out that like my church is equally both. (laughs) It's equally both the people who will leave if I don't do it. Like, We'll use justice as an example because it can be a polarizing word. Who, if they will leave if I'm not pushing justice, they will leave if I use the word justice. And so those guys are on. I, I have no like. I'm not speaking to that. I and I, I I mean, I do think wisdom and the sake of your own longevity and leadership would say you, you kind of do need to figure out what your mission and vision is going to be and let people leave if they need to leave. But for some people, that means letting someone whose daughter you baptized 30 years ago and whose wedding you officiated say like, oh, I'm out, like, because, because mm. the, the the resources I'm taking in are telling me that you're a heretic and, right. um, or you've gone woke. And, um, so yeah, like I, I, I want to acknowledge that. Um, but I'm thinking like for newer leaders starting out like me, I, I just feel like that the most wisdom is probably going to be just, just stick with your vision and mission. Yes. And especially yes. if the spirit of God has birthed it in you for your community. And, yeah. um, yeah. Hopefully there will be people who do disagree with you that come, that challenge you, that help yeah. help maybe shift you a little bit, yeah. and vice versa. You don't, and, and I want to. I, I wanted to add this clarification too. I, you, you obviously don't want to create some echo chamber that becomes its own kind of tribalistic thing where the where they're so bought into the vision. <laughs> this sounds almost counterintuitive, but like where they're so bought in that there is no room. Like you said, there is no room for kind of pushback or wiggle room or differences of opinion. Like you don't want to create an echo chamber. That's not what I'm saying. I feel like you're, well, tell us, what are your values? Like, what are, what are some of the key values that you're going to be about as a church? And if people want to be a part of that, then great. But if yeah. not, then they're just not going to really resonate with what we're doing. What are those key values? Totally. And so actually this does tie back into our conversation about deconstruction and like what, what brings you back. So, um, I think that the best path towards like a meaningful, like fulfilled life and like the the best way to dig a deeper well within yourself and coincidentally the belief system that gives you the best tools to deal with reality um is like authentic deep genuine pursuit of christ likeness um and so this is where i come in really really closely 
uh, like in agreement with John Mark Comer's approach to ministry or um, even we've named dropped Swoboda once, but like his approach to ministry of like discipleship as the process of utilizing ancient spiritual practices that that do bring about character transformation. Um, so Dallas Willard, who is like a big hero of mine, like he he talks about how, you know, we have a soul and a will and a heart that we interact with the world with, and that comes through our bodies and we interact with the world through our bodies. But the way we change is almost the out, it's almost the opposite, is that you do things with your body and it then habituates into your heart and your soul. And so mm-hmm. the idea is that like you you don't think your way into new practices, you practice your way into new thinking. And oh, so yeah. for well, us, that's, that's Jamie Smith, right? Like you are what you love, like your, your habits will kind of cultivate and lead your affections, right? I mean, I don't know if that's, it's been a while since I read it, but yeah. Yeah. Like Augustinian very much like changing your loves, changing your desires or David Bennett's war of loves. Mm. Um, it's, it's about like, like, like confronting those things and then being very intentional with that. So for us, like our number one, our mission is really twofold, but our number one thing is that we are being process we're going through the process of being formed into the image of jesus and and for us that's that's different than bedroom bible college where you just read your bible all the time like that's part of it but like it's also like allowing those the lifestyle of jesus to live in your body and like interact with the world in a way that that follows jesus and then the second thing for us is like we're here to reach spiritually homeless people um i'm not interested in i think lateral church growth doesn't actually advance the kingdom of god like i think it's keeping the kingdom of God exactly where it's at. You're in a new community. I think advancing the kingdom of God is taking on a missional model that people who are de-churched, unchurched, never been to church, will never go to church, like all of a sudden come across your community and are second guessing every story they've heard about Christianity. And so, but to me, that only happens if we are genuinely pursuing Christ-likeness and genuinely be formed into the image of Jesus. So for me, what brought me back to a more like, uh, as, as you and I would say, like orthodox perspective of Christianity was like, if you don't take the Jesus of the Bible seriously, there is no Jesus for you to be formed into the image of. It's it's different opinions and ideas. Like you have to read the scriptures thoroughly and clearly, as clearly as possible, if you're going to have a vision uh, to become that type of person. That's so good, man. Wait, when you said Christ, okay, formed into Christ likeness, like. I just want to dig underneath that a little bit. Like, what does that look like on Tuesday morning or Wednesday afternoon? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, what what is that? Because that that could be Christians nod their head. Oh yeah. Well, okay, but what does that mean? Like, what does that? How does that play out? You know. Willard would say, and I I hope I never get accused of quoting him more than I do the Bible, but he does <laughs> have a really clear like like vision of this. Is he says a disciple is someone who knows how to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus would do. And the, so for us, like. Christ likeness starts with um, John 15, abiding in the vine, um, just sitting in the presence of Jesus. I think intimacy with Christ is the birthplace of all spiritual transformation. Then it, that process leads you to becoming like Jesus, where it's like, again, as Willard would say, like it's easier to do the right thing than the wrong thing. And I think what he's getting at there is like at a gut level, your reaction is to just respond to things the way Jesus would respond. It's you don't have to you don't even have to think through it and be intentional about it. Like it's just naturally coming out of you. It's so like, for example, I was talking with a, someone last night and um, he was talking about a conversation that he had had with his kid when there was some very personal stuff going on. And he had he had said that, like, you know, I just said this and I just embraced him and I held him. And and I said to him, I was like, wow, you were really representing Jesus well in that moment. And he said, I wasn't even thinking about Jesus. So I don't think Jesus had anything to do with it. But I know this guy. Like, I know this guy's in the word and this guy is yeah. is praying. Yeah. This guy's devoted his life to that. I'm like, that's not true. Like, it just naturally flowed out of you. Your gut instinct was to respond like Jesus. And then doing what Jesus would do. That's taking care of the marginalized. That's in, that's having dinner with, with people that maybe church people shouldn't, quote unquote, be having dinner with. And um and I think a lot, I think that's where progressive Christianity gets it is the doing what Jesus would do part, but it misses the becoming like Jesus and the being with Jesus. And so it, it, it leads to burnout and exhaustion um, and an anemic spirituality. So, yeah, that's what I think. Like, wake up on Tuesday morning, be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do become, do, be become do. Yeah. What's your ideal size of the church that you're planting? I, I know you're not supposed to, I, I don't, the, the numbers thing is funny because, 
I've never heard a pastor. Well, I actually have, but you know, most pastors I know would say it's not about the numbers, whatever. And yet when a church grows, it's exciting. <laughs> it gives you energy. You're like, I think we're doing something right. Let's hire on another person. And, and you know, our youth has gone from five people to 20 people to a youth pastor. I never heard a pastor say, oh, that's kind of discouraging. You know, our church is growing or, or I can care less, you know, like I, it's, and if a church started shrinking, the same pastor said it's not about the numbers would be probably, I'm assuming would think, what are we doing wrong? Like, so I don't know. I feel like there's, there's this gap between like what we say, because I know we're supposed to say in, in reaction against kind of mega church, whatever. I don't, I don't care about growth, you know. But I kind of do. Like, <laughs> for instance, like you know, do you know of a church that doesn't care but doesn't care about growth? That if they maxed out the one service, that they wouldn't go to two services because we don't. Yeah, we maxed out. We're good. We we got what we want. We're gonna stick with five hundred people because our building holds five fifty. And it, sorry, right. I kind of go somewhere else if you know there's no room for you here. <laughs> so yeah. I don't know. So, I, I know. What, what what do you in numbers? Why? Like, if you do grow beyond a certain number, would you try to reproduce? Like, saying, "Hey, we want each gathering to not be too big, but we'll reproduce." Or do you have have you thought that far ahead? Or so would you? Or I, would you just keep growing? And again, I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm not even sure. I wouldn't. I don't know what I would do if I was a pastor and thousand people wanted to come to church. Or I don't know. This is going to sound really like a cop out answer. Um, I <laughs> whatever God our- wants us to do. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever Jesus wants. Uh, I don't want our church to grow beyond the capacity to do the vision well. Ooh, I think you reach, you reach a certain number of people, for lack of a better term, like you kind of have to be a little bit more aware of your consumer at that point. And it's like, okay, we, we got to pay the bills and we have a thousand people. So we have a staff of 30 and I got to keep them all employed because if I say something wrong and Mm. half of those people leave, that's half those people out of jobs. And, and I, and I think there are some churches that, uh, are really well suited for that and are making authentic disciples of Jesus where the leader does have a vision that, that can be that big. Um, I'm not convinced that that's where we're at. I don't think my vision the vision of my team would sustain a thousand people. So for us, like if we get a building that can fit 300 people in a sanctuary and let's say 50 kids on top of that, I've been saying from the get go, I'm not doing more than two services on a weekend. And so if we get to a point where we need more than that, then I've been telling my team since day one, some of you guys might be lead pastor someday getting sent out to the other side of town, hopefully doing the same thing as us. Um, but not being your own autonomous church that we're sending out. Yeah. It just, because you're in a spot where you, you can create the values and vision that you want from ground up. Other churches, they're just in this hard spot to where the budget ends up determining the values rather than the values determining the budget. Cause yeah, when I don't know any pastor, I've never met a pastor who, well, aside from the reproducing models, cause I do know people that say, no, once we get over a certain hundred, 200, like, we we will reproduce like we're not gonna we we like reproducing is so built into the vision that that's just what we're gonna do so that no kind of community gets bigger than 150 or 200 that that kind of vision aside like if a church does start growing then they let it grow and then they do another service and then the tithing is up and then they hire more staff and then but that that snowball effect and all of a sudden you have this as Dan White Jr. says, this church industrial complex where you have money and and, and payrolls and building expenses so intertwined with the vision of the church. And then, oh yeah, we're, oh, we're going to do a sermon on sexuality. Well, let's kind of not do that because 30% might leave and that's going to take away the budget and I'm not going to be able to make pay. Like, like you have, uh, and, and I don't, I, I feel like I can identify sort of kind of the problem here. <laughs> What's the better vision? I don't know. I don't know how, you know, like, you know, Francis, that's why Francis says our church is not going to have any, anybody on staff. No, nobody's paid because we don't want money to ever, we don't want any ministry decision or decision to preach on this, to do this as a church, to be dictated by um, financial loss or something like that, or however he, he worded it. I really value paying people in ministry and paying them well. Um, so I, I, I'm not sure if I'm totally on board with that that vision necessarily. But um, 
I don't know. You, you've got the opportunity right now at the beginning stages to think, how can we make sure we don't let the budget drive the values rather than the values driving the budget? And I, I, I don't know what the answer to that is, you know? And I hope I can stick to my guns on that. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I know that I am, um, gosh, I am very susceptible to, we got a good crowd going. So, like, and I, and, and I, I, I you know, I listened to, the rise and fall of Mars Hill and so much of what they were talking about, like, hopefully this doesn't scare people away from me, but like uh, the stuff they were talking about Mark Driscoll early on, like, I'm like, Oh, I got to be careful of that. Cause that is in me. And, um, that like desire for power and, yeah. and, and acclaim and like, it's all there. Like, and, and so like, I, I hope and I pray that like, I can stick to the, my guns and what the spirit has given me. And I'm trying to put leaders in my life who, will hold me accountable to that. But I also like, I can't tell you like what it's like to start a new thing and have mass interest in it. And yeah. that the, the appeal to the ego, the, the, okay, God, maybe I thought it was this, but it's actually that. And like that whole process, like I have no clue. I, this is all hypothetical at this point, but my hope is that like, I feel like I've got a clarified vision. I feel like my team and the people I respect are on board with it. Mm-hmm. Um, really want to stick with that. <laughs> yeah. Here's one idea. And I'm, just, I'm not saying this is even something you would want to do, but just an idea that church planners in, a, in, in the world we're now living in, which is so turbulent and so different, is, is, is there a way to integrate entrepreneurial ventures into the life of the church? Like if, for instance, if your building could also be used to, you know, host other, I, I've talked about this. I hope I haven't talked about this too much, but like one of my things I'd love to explore is to get a building that can be used as a coffee shop during a day. Like you, you, you lease it out to a coffee shop um, during a day. Maybe you also lease it out to like a, a, a brew pub at night or something like a tasting room. Uh, and then the church gatherings are kind of integrated throughout that. I mean, I think if you did that with two different businesses, you would not only be able to bless those businesses with cheap rent because they're both utilizing the space, but then you have um, maybe not, no, none of your budget goes into the building, which would be amazing. You've already brought the community into the public square rather than trying to beg people to go to church. You know, you're, you brought the church to where people are naturally gathered. So there's so many win, 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 things about that but then also you're you're kind of you're alleviating the financial stress by doing things as a church that make money not yeah. profits over people you're blessing people are always coming before profits they should but it's not wrong like you don't when's the last time you confronted your christian dentist for making you know six seven figure you know it's like oh no it's fine to make money uh i don't know like i just wonder if 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 you know who's doing this is um hugh halter i think uh out in He's he's done he's kind of explored kind of these more just like real creative integrative ways of doing the church. Like I think he has like a a restaurant or a coffee shop. Francis has done some of this stuff too in 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 San Francisco. I just I just think there there's there are some there are a lot of potential ways in which the traditional church budget, traditional church structured around a certain budget that we've kind of the way we've always done it can and often has hindered robust radical discipleship i'm just saying as a broad thirty thousand foot category like how can we as church planners you you start off so that we don't end up down the road to where again the 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 structure of the church is actually you're not able to do the discipleship you want to do but largely because there's just so many finances that have just embedded themselves embedded itself in 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 the mission of the church is that i don't know is that Mouth to lunch. <laughs> Dude, I'm right. I'm right there with you. Um, if we had, uh, if we like, I have a. I hate. I mean, this is. He's one of my favorite people, but I also hate him. Um, it's a guy named Joe. <laughs> I hope it's not me. Uh, <laughs> who, who is it? You, you, you said his name. <laughs> I'm a name problem. Yeah. Um, he's a Joe Gruber. He pastors a church in Portland, and he had this beautiful building just given to him. Before he even started his church, so I hate him for it. But like, I also like if if that something like that yeah. happened to us, yeah. like that's one of the first things we would do is seek out like to lease it out to other businesses. And yeah. I am all bored. I, I honestly like any church. Well, first of all, like even if you have a church of five thousand people, 
uh, that building is empty five days a week. Um, so you can, you can do that. And like, there's, okay, there's this church in Bend, Oregon, and, uh, they're, I'm not gonna say the name of the church cause they haven't landed on this yet, but they're heavily exploring, like, uh, not changing the name of their church, but changing their name of their building and opening up, like donating offices to social workers and foster parents, like facilities and, um, like just making it a community center where like plays are happening and like, uh, they, you know, the event, it's a venue for people and, um, making the church, like not really much a church building anymore, but more of a community center. And it, it is a mega church. Like they have three, I think 3000 people that are going there. And, um, but they, they're like, this is how we can serve our city best is by donating the office space by like letting people who want to start daycare, start daycares here. And mm -hmm. so they're just, and then even my, uh, my mentor at Eugene face center, like he's also exploring that with what ways that they can use their building to be a blessing to the community. And I love that. And I think more people are moving towards that. I think if, if you're not thinking about that, you should. Yeah, <laughs> like as a that's good. I think ch churches are so used to everything is like, for lack of a better for, from in business terms, like donor supported. So part, I guess part of this is because I, I run, you know, a nonprofit and the Algin Raw has become its own uh, LLC. And, and I just, I hate, I, for, from the beginning, I've hated raising money, like donors. I don't like that. I, I, I love things that are more financially sustainable where you're doing things and that's generating income to fund what you're doing so that the work you're doing is actually sustainable, you know, so you're not calling the same donor every six months, whatever. Now, uh, churches have this tithing system where you don't even need to do that. You just, well, you do have to ask for money, but it just kind of comes. But I feel like ministries have become so used to, we operate for free because people give money. I just wonder in the, in the new world that we're moving into, where finances are turbulent, where uh, Gen Z and millennials don't donate, don't tie. <laughs> Sorry, just a little stereotype. Uh, the boomers that give 10% faithfully are not going to be around in 5, 10, 20 years, you know. The financial balloon we had in the 80s, there's a good book written on this that most of our ministry models were kind of formed in the 70s and 80s and 90s when when we had so much money coming to the church. So you can just do all kinds of stuff, you know, church of a hundred, let's get 30 full-time staff, you know, like, but we swear these ministry models, but like the economics is not the same anymore. And it's not going to be sustainable for several reasons that I stated. And we've already seen ministries close down because they were just built on these massive budgets that, that just can't be sustained anymore. And I just wonder if the church will be able to thrive if they lose, I don't know. I just, nonprofit status or something or, or, or people aren't giving, you know, like, I don't know, like, like, yeah, as we move into more financially turbulent times, it would be, I think, more sustainable if we can have some sort of like rev revenue coming into the church. That sounds almost bad to even say it. Like you're so programmed, like, no, if you do something Christian, you can't make money off it. But the Christian doctor can make a million and that's totally fine, dude. Good job, dude. You know, it's like, wait a minute, have we divided the secular and sacred in a way? It's just not... Not helpful, but um, it's, it's not just a good like business thought. It's good missiology, missional thinking. Pastor worth their salt that I've listened to has all said the same thing that um, any church that's that's missional strategy has the expectation of people just coming to your campus for the sake of just coming to church uh, is not going to reach unchurched or dechurched people. Like it's really we have to we have to have a sent out model. You figure out what, where are people gathering, where pe where are places that people find safety and share their values, and so that could be like a bowling league or a pub or a golf league or whatever. Like, and then you permeate that social mosaic. You just get in there and you hang out and you show up over and over and over again. If you can make your church a pub or a coffee shop or a place where those social mosaics are happening at your campus without them having to come to church. Uh, like yeah. that's, that's brilliant. Like it's, 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 it is reaching people with the gospel, um, in really, really practical yeah. ways. So it's not just financially responsible, it's missionally responsible. I'm just, I'm, I'm thinking out loud here, but like, as you're talking, I was envisioning kind of that, that big church you're talking about, like, and I'm just envisioning like this big warehouse that you had, you know, um, almost like a mini, not mall. I hate malls, but <laughs> like, yeah, you had a cigar lounge over here. You had a coffee shop here. You had a whatever ministry outpost. Yeah, you, you had maybe communal workspaces where people ran out a desk and and you're doing things yeah. that are generating income. Like, what if you had people ahead of profits 
models of businesses that were charging fair rates, uh, but were generating income? And what if the churches had a lot of extra money to send missionaries overseas to start business ventures overseas? Not, not just, not just, not that this is wrong necessarily, but there are some, some countries to where if you go over as a missionary that doesn't have like a, in, in their eyes, like a real job, like I, I, uh, my cousin was in, in North Africa was, was a missionary. And he says, business's mission is the only way to do that. If you come in as a missionary, like, and you meet somebody in there, like, what do you do for work? I'm like, I'm a, I'm a you can't say I'm a missionary. Like I just live here. <laughs> Wait, so how do you make money? Oh, I just, you know, there's certain areas where it just does that doesn't communicate. Like when people are like, like, but having an actual business where you're, you're making money and you're profitable, like that gains respect from other people who are also trying to, you know, work and make money. And what if the church had like, they, because they were exercising faithful entrepreneurial skills, had lots of resources at their disposal to, to pay their youth pastor a hundred thousand dollars a year. So I'm serious. I think the youth pastor should be the highest paid people in the church. I think they should have a master's in psychology because every, most of the people they're trying to shepherd are struggling with depression, suicidality. Um, 20% have been sexually abused by an uncle. Um, they, their discipleship is stunted because they have so much like stuff going on in their life that, that more than any other younger generation and youth pastors are like, I, I'm not equipped to do this. Well then go get equipped. We'll pay for it. If you're not equipped then bring in the best Christian therapists to come and help these kids. I mean, think about the endless opportunities that if the church did have just like, like resource, financial resources at their disposal, not because people just keep giving more and more and more, but because they've, they've, they've exercised faithful entrepreneurial skills. I don't know, man. Is, is this, is this idealistic? This is what I do. I sit in my basement and just like think of all these unrealistic ideas. <laughs> and then say you should do this. <laughs> we've been talking for 20 minutes you're gonna get an email that's just gonna explain to you why everything we just said can't happen <laughs> <laughs> oh man i know right youth pastors getting paid six figures <laughs> well anyway <laughs> Many blessings on your church plant, bro. <laughs> I'll be your armchair. I'll be your Monday morning quarterback throwing you all these ideas that you're like, dude, just stay in your basement. Put <laughs> on your fancy conferences and yeah. stick to talk about sexuality. I, I know. Yeah, all the easy stuff. <laughs> you're working on a new book. Yeah. Are you allowed to talk about that? Yeah, I'll talk a little bit about um the premise. Like the premise actually. So we were when we were at Theology in a Row last year, after I got done speaking, I got a Twitter message from somebody from a publisher who wanted to get together and talk about if I was working on anything. And right. I was. Right. I told him what I was working on. And uh, and he was like, oh, yeah, we're pretty much like we're not really interested in that. I'm like, OK, well, thanks. And then he said, have you thought about writing a book about like something about faith and sexuality? And my first book, Regenerate, is is kind of, I mean, it's my story, so it's a little bit about that. And you and Greg Coles and David Bennett and Jackie Hill Perry, like, there's been, I am, from my perspective, so much said that I don't feel like I have anything to add to. Um, and so I, I said that, and uh, he was like, okay. And then we left, and I think it was while John Tyson was speaking, um, like, I felt like I just had, like, this idea downloaded in my brain. And I don't even remember what John said, like for because <laughs> I was just thinking through, like, and kind of taking notes of, like, so the idea wouldn't leave my head. Um, and I, I bounced it off you and Greg Coles, and then I went to to the editor, and pretty much. So what I, what I'm working on is uh, a book that's addressing specific barriers that LGBTQ people experience in the church. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's been a lot of conversation about having orthodox theology, having, uh, I mean, when we, my team went through people to be loved, the church plant team. And, um, the first thing I said is like, this book takes, has the position and posture that we all need to have when it comes to this conversation. Um, but like, as far as like, how do you actually integrate that into the life of a community? That's a different Um, book. I didn't write that, but yeah, that's, that's part two. Yeah. So that's that's uh, that's what we're that's what I'm working on. Um, so I'm just addressing. I think I, I I narrowed it down from like twenty to like twelve barriers specifically of that's um, so awesome. 
talking about what those barriers are, like the societal context as to how those barriers came to place, and then how the gospel helps us go beyond those barriers. So yeah, so it's a work in progress. I'm not even close to being done with it. But Do you have any big barriers that are clearly going to be in the book? I know you're probably still working through which ones, but are there some big, huge barriers? I think the three the three biggest ones that that um, I'll probably spend it'll be hard to not make the book just these three um, is the barrier of of history the barrier of okay. like the stories that people believe about the church that people in the church believe about the church let alone people outside the church when it comes to this this topic and I think the gospel power to address that is is repentance and um, so so I don't history think- like the 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 real the tension between LGBTQ people and the church, given how the church talked about LGBT people for so long and the AIDS crisis and all, all that. Yeah, yeah. Not just AIDS crisis, but like um, some of the treatments in the 1950s that oh. people back when it was considered a mental disorder, right. uh, Alan Turing, the guy we're talking on computers right now, the guy who, who invented the computer um, was, was chemically castrated uh, because he was gay. And like, that wasn't, post-enlightenment like sexual ethics that did that that was a a really bad reading of scripture uh with people in power that did that and Mm. um so like there is like a a brutal history and i just don't think that um as culture becomes more defensive and more tribalistic a robust theology of repentance not just i'm repenting towards God for my own sin, but repenting towards my brothers and sisters for the sins we've done against them has to be like really, really fleshed out. And I mean, you think about Daniel chapter six, and he is repenting to God for the sins of Israel that he did not commit. Um, But he is, he is still a part of Israel. It's his family, whether or not he wants to admit it, he's repenting for those sins. And like that, that, that has crossed, you know, you can talk about race with that conversation, but specifically you might not have ever done anything mean or improper to somebody who's same-sex attracted or trans, but you still have to carry a posture of repentance because the history is yours. You've inherited it by becoming a Christian. And we so, um, yes. kind of changed that story. I can um, hear people resisting that because we're so individualistic. I mean, even as I hear like, yeah, but it wasn't me, you know, but like, <laughs> yeah. but you, you, you are part of a religious institution that has that history and, I, you used a phrase that was actually perfect, a posture of repentance or, or what, what you weren't even saying like you sinned, you need to repent as an individual, but to have a posture of, I am so sorry that the, the this religion that I belong to has a history of doing these things. And I, you know, yeah, that posture of repentance is so helpful. I, and you know, what's funny is that, that people have to spend idea spend, time and energy fleshing that out as if like we we've forgotten that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of god like we should all have more than a posture of defensiveness we should always right. have a posture of repentance um that's a total failure of discipleship on our own part uh, that if i it's easier for me to want to fight want to defend want to say that wasn't me want to nitpick your ideas rather than actually listen and receive what you're trying to say. Um, that is a lack of Jesus being formed in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, yeah, it, it's, it's more of like whole scale discipleship, but specifically with this conversation, if the church wants to have any hope at all of uh, reaching LGBTQ people without uh, changing an orthodox stance on sex, gender, and marriage, um, it needs to like really embody that. Like it really needs to demonstrably show even though we might not be affirming, we are not all the bad ideas that you're thinking. And mm-hmm. um, in fact, we seek to repent and repair those things. That's good. So that's number one. What, what's a, what's, we'll just do one more. What's the second big barrier? Um, honestly, like a barrier is secular culture. Um, like that is a, that is a major barrier. People come, you know, we come into the church with, with ideas about faith and sexuality. We have inherited from TV and commercials and, and I'm going to sound like a cynic. Um, okay. I'll just give this an example. I'm a big, you know, I'm a big movie fan. Like I just, yeah, I love movies yeah. and, uh, I watch the Oscars every year and, um, somebody, I don't know. I've never met anybody who actually watches the Oscars. <laughs> Dude, we have a pool. We bet money on it. Like we, <laughs> we watch all the movies and this last year, the, the slap hurt around the world before yeah. that, 
Um, like there was uh, somebody who'd won, and the first thing she says is, "I am a queer woman of color." <laughs> There's a such a big piece of me that's like, I, you're you're building your brand right here. Like you're building your brand by 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 like marketing yourself as this, and um, and maybe she wasn't herself doing that. But anyways, I say that to say like there are, are nefarious forces out there that are trying to send messages. This sounds so <laughs> conspiracy theory, but sending messages about like was was no conviction. The bottom line is to make money. And what is popular right now is to be overtly tolerant of all things, sex, gender and whatever you want to define marriage to be. Mm-hmm. And that forms us, that shapes us. And so when you come into the church, like having an idea of what is at work in secularism is really, really important. I think Bo Burnham is a standup comedian who uh, I think moonlights as a prophet. Like he, he has this joke in one of his recent specials where he talks about being an ad agency. Um, and he's like teaching people how to uh, sell their brand. And he says, do you, it's, the question isn't, do you want to buy wheat thins? It's, do you want to help wheat thins fight Lyme disease? By buying wheat thins and like and like and that is like <laughs> real quick. What's that guy's name again? I'm, I'm totally into stand-up comedians right now, so I'm always looking for new Bo Burnham. Yeah, I'll text. I'll text you. Okay, haven't I heard of this guy? Okay. Yeah, that's brilliant. Oh. I, no, I I don't think it's consp- conspiracy theory ish to question whether power and money is behind a lot of things in America. <laughs> Not just America, yeah. but America has a lot of power and a lot of money. But I mean, this is true of just human nature. So, so how many people have the sexual abuse they have because people who <laughs> with power and money are trying to get more power and money? Like, I think that's a conversation that's worth having. Um, you know, have you heard of Edward Bernays? There's a documentary that the BBC did called The Century of Self. And he's known as like the, the father of modern advertising. And he, he was kind of really, he's Freud's nephew. So he really like, wow. he was genius wow. because he like took the strategy of advertising of connecting someone's desires to the product, not the practicality of the product, but saying, if you have this product, you become this type of person. And um, now like that's just advertising. But at the time, like people marketed their stuff based off of its practicality and Bernays completely changed the entire game. And it's tight. And then so Carl Truman talks a little bit about in Strange New World, like right. how modern advertising uh, has affected the political politicization of sexuality. And mm-hmm. um, so, yeah, I think that's worth exploring. I think that's a barrier. Like that's a barrier that the church experiences and LGBTQ people experience um, that should be addressed. So that's a barrier that you're saying LGBT people might be bringing into their church experience or exploring church to come into the church and they're bringing some of these yeah. secular narratives maybe with them. That's just true of everybody, right? I mean, you can apply that to anybody coming in. It's exploring the way of Jesus is he's going to have on some level that is anybody not affected by advertisements, uh, news, social media, like just the, the medium through which we are just being formed and shaped as a society in 2022. Um, yeah. I think it's just pervasive. Well, I just, something I, I keep thinking through is just even the, the way new traditional or mainstream news outlets are just that they're, they're, they need to make money off of getting people angry and they need to get sponsors when their ratings are up. Like there's this whole system that is just, but you know the the, the whole system uh, of of the medium through which we are getting our information is so I don't want to say rigged, but I kind of want to say rigged. <laughs> like it's <laughs> yeah, it's driven by power and money. Like it's not it's not like people like oh I, we we're motivated because we really want people to understand the truth. I'm like no, that doesn't. It's not going to increase ad revenue. Come on, <laughs> like, that's not. <laughs> you need to get people angry so they click more, right? I mean that's I don't think this is even debated anymore. Like. You know, people get fired up and angry and they're going to click, they're going to click and you're going to, the goal is to keep them clicking and you get more ad revenue and even news outlets um, have kind of fallen into that. It seems like most of them at least. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. So yeah, I think think the barrier, and then I want to connect each barrier to how the gospel empowers us to overcome that. And, and that one is just um, spiritual formation, discipleship. It's, it's taking on the mind of Christ, and and I and whether that not all churches need to have that be the mission of their church like it is mine, but 
that is part of discipleship yeah. is, is learning how to become like Jesus. And right. yeah. Good stuff. So man. I'm excited. Good progress. But well, I'm excited. Little... Do you have a date? Or do you have a public, you have a publisher, right? Can you say the publisher? No, <sighs> it's not finalized yet. Okay. So, yeah. no, so not... I'll say the publisher, but you'll, you'll, you'll probably maybe, well, if you, you'll probably turn it, when will you, it's usually a year out after you turn in the manuscript. So we're probably looking at maybe 2024. So. Yeah. Right. Well, I'll, I'll have you back on. Uh, okay. <laughs> when you actually write the thing, dude, always love talking with you and uh, really stoked about your church plant, man. That's just, I think you're going to get a lot of interest just because I know you, I know your values, and I think there's a deep hunger among Christians for what you're, what you're doing, man. So you might find yourself being a mega church pastor, whether you like it or not. <laughs> This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network.